as we are studying the book of Revelation, we have come to the final part, the final victory and the last judgment. That's what we find in Revelation chapter 19 to 20, all that we have studied so far. Now we have almost come towards the end and let's see what is there. Because just in the chapter 18, we saw the fall of Babylon. You know, that is the fate of Babylon, the prostitute that's from 19, 1 to 5. We, we saw that. And then we saw the future New Jerusalem, the bride. Uh, that's, that's, that's what we are uh, we saw and then there is a contrast and there is a comparison. You know, this, both these events, one is the fall and one is the future. Both these events, uh, interestingly, uh, it, it marks the, it invites the praises in heaven. In heaven, where, you know, when the, when the fall took place, as well as when the future New Jerusalem comes, the new bride comes, it invites the praises of heaven. Uh, it only really shows that, it shows the fulfillment of God's uh, perfect purposes. Uh, whenever God's perfect purposes are achieved, uh, there are praises in heaven. God, to say that God alone deserves praise for such events, you know, it's not brought about by human beings. It's brought about by God. And as and when God works in our lives, you know, when we experience those deliverances, uh, we need to praise uh, God. That's a lesson we can learn from uh, here in this uh, chapter. So in God's design, what's going to happen is the prostitute will be burned. And she will be burned by her own um, alienated lovers. If you remember that in Revelation chapter 17, 16 to 17, the beast and the 10 horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. Now, this is what's going to happen to Babylon. And here in this case, this, this is the fate of Babylon. And when we come to the new Jerusalem, the lamb welcomes his bride. That's what we'll be seeing. The lamb welcomes his bride. Whereas if you see in this case, the very people, the beast and the ten horns, they will hate the prostitute. Evil will come to an end. <clears throat> Sin has an inherent power. Uh, of destruction, and that's what's going to happen, and that's what's uh, being told here also. 
earlier we saw that you know in chapter 18 we say it is basically a funeral lament just you know woe woe unto you woe unto you that's what we saw but now the scene is being shifted to heaven you know it's like from a funeral house going into a wedding house that's what's happening in chapter 19 so what we are going to see in chapter 19 is threefold hallelujah over Babylon's fall. The same threefold woe we saw in chapter 18. Now we saw this threefold hallelujah over Babylon's fall. The contrast, like I said, from a funeral house to a wedding house. So there is so much of rejoicing. How do we understand the book of Revelation? Otherwise, each one has their own idea and they come and tell. But we need to be very, very clear. Now, although the Babylon's fall, the book of Revelation uh, refers to Rome, it looks beyond Rome. Now, if you only confine this to this Rome, then the book's uh, significance is gone, but the message is not only to Rome, it looks beyond Rome to all the oppressive elements of the world system that carry on Rome's role until the return of Christ. Basically, the message is all evil regimes will be judged by God. And right from Rome's fall, if you read uh, history, we find that many nations have come up and they no longer exist. They say civilizations rise and fall. Like that, the regimes have come and they have fallen. They have never remained in power for a long, long, long time because of evil. And even today in 21st century, all evil regimes will face the very same fate of Babylon. That is the message we see in this uh, book. So the first verse in chapter 19, after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, what is this? Uh, what is the significance? Sorry, it is. What is the significance about the word hallelujah in this verse? You can unmute yourself and you can answer. Okay, what is significant about the word hallelujah in this verse? Praising God. Okay, praising God. Yes, the meaning of the word hallelujah itself is praise the Lord. Uh, what is the significance? here in this place in revelation in the book of revelation when we say hallelujah it means praise the lord no, that's the meaning of the word hallelujah but it is interesting to see this word in the book of revelation okay let me put this uh, the other way let me ask like this uh, do you find this word in the New Testament? Before this 
chapter, that's before Revelation 19, do you find this word hallelujah in the New Testament? Do you remember reading this word anywhere in the New Testament? No. Huh? Yes. Nowhere else in New Testament, I believe. No, nowhere, nowhere else. That is the that is the significance. Nowhere else we find this word hallelujah. It is only in the book of Revelation we find this book, uh, the word hallelujah. It is there in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Psalm. It is very frequent. And now hallelujah is a, you know, we find more in the book of Psalm. Because hallelujah is, a, you know, if you read the grammar, if you read the Hebrew language, and if you read the uh, grammar and its connotation, basically it means, you know, when we say hallelujah, it, it is the strongest possible command. Hallelujah is the strongest possible command. It is like run. Go out from here. It is, it is some kind of strong command, which uh, normally, uh, which used to be uttered by the Levite musicians. And basically they are summoning the hearers to worship. In other words, when, they, when the worship leader says, hallelujah, the entire congregation is required to just worship God, to come to attention. It is just like a summon. You leave all, almost a world and you enter into a different world. And that is the meaning of the word hallelujah. And in chapter 18, we saw warn to you, warn to you, warn to you. And here we are saying hallelujah. So something is happening in heaven. Because the word hallelujah is there, as I said, hallelujah is basically a word. Uh, it is a call to worship. When the Levite musicians, when they say hallelujah, it is called to worship. So same way that this word is also is being used in the heavenly court. That's why you have this, I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting. It's like a huge choir in heaven, you know, making this noise. That, that, that's the picture that's here. After reading all the downfall and all the kind of destruction, what you find in chapter 19 is a roaring, Adoration that's taking place in heaven. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. That's, that's the worship uh, that's, that's going on in heaven. So we go to the next verse. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by our adulteries, he has arranged on a blood of his servants. Now, uh, I, as I keep uh, telling this again, as I telling this again and again, because there are many teachings that are going on uh, right now. There'll be no judgment. 
God is not going to judge. God is a loving God. After all, Jesus died for us on the cross. How can he ever judge us? Uh, if we don't understand the, if we don't get the real correct meaning of the meaning in the book of, uh, in the Bible, then we will go wrong. It is true. God is loving. It is also true. God is holy. Because he is holy, he cannot overlook sins. And he is loving. He cannot overlook the cries of his children. We have seen the seven letters uh, to the churches. And we see the kind of persecution that they're enduring. It is almost what, uh, you know, what one sows that he reaps. These evil, it is not that God was against the Roman emperor. It is not that God was against. The kind of activities in which he indulged, imagine, just because you happen to be a believer, just because you happen to be a slave, they'll push you into the amphitheaters and they will watch the people being killed. Now, there is a God for everybody who is seated on the, in the stadium as well as for the people in the arena. There is a God. He is the one who created both of them. And God has to be a righteous judge. So vindication for the righteous <clears throat> will always include just punishment. That is the reason for true and just are his judgments. If we go through the Bible, right from the beginning, we find this, that God will deliver his judgments. He will avenge the blood of his children. God will not be sitting quiet because he is a just God. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 30 to 43, rejoice you nations with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. In Psalm 79, 10, why should the nations say, where is their God? Before our eyes, make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. Jeremiah 51, 48, 49. Then heaven and earth and all that is in them will shout for joy over Babylon. For out of the north, destroyers will attack her, declares the Lord. Babylon must fall because of Israel's slain, just as the slain in all the earth have fallen because of Babylon. God is a righteous God. So he will be just in his judgment. And when these people are judged, they will not say that we have been wrongly judged. They'll accept it for the kind of atrocity, evil that they had indulged in. They'll accept that. That's what's happening here. And there is so much of joy in heaven. Again, what happens? And again, they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Smoke from her, from where? Babylon. Babylon is? In Revelation, Babylon is? 
in Revelation, Babylon means Rome. The Rome, which was a prosperous country, an advanced country, a developed country, you know, economically strong, and it ruled over many nations, smoke goes from her up forever and ever. This is a judgment on the evil empire. And John is basically borrowing this word uh, from the fall of Edom that we find in the book of Isaiah. John is well-versed uh, in the Old Testament. So in Isaiah 34, 10, it says, it will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation, it will light desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. So if you read this entire chapter, you will see that it talks about the fall of Edom. And John is saying, what happened to Edom will also happen to Rome. And what happens to Rome, Babylon, will also happen to other Babylons. Any evil empire will be destroyed. And that is the reason when we come to Isaiah chapter 66, the very same thing is applied to the other evil empires. And they'll go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will be quenched. And they'll be loathsome to all mankind. In other, in other words, we can apply this imagery to all the evil empires. One day, one day, God will judge. Remember, all authority in, in this earth is only a derived authority. It's a delegated authority because there is a king who is seated on the throne. So whatever authority people have, it is not only in the governments, even in the churches, whatever authority, it is all delegated authority. And whenever there is misuse and abuse, God is going to judge. So when we are thinking about judgment, it is not only limited to the political powers, it is also limited to the churches, to every place where power is being misused and abused because every power, including the parents, the power that you have over the children is also a delegated authority. When we misuse and abuse, the parents are also going to face the consequence. But when it comes to an empire, it, it is, it's in a macro scale and it is and it said the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. It's like a warlike situation uh, and it goes forever and ever. The, you know, whenever you find that smoke goes forever and ever, you read in the stories, it's it basically, it is evoking a natural war imagery. A war is taking place, a heavenly war, war between the good and bad, war between God and the devil. And here John is presenting this scene as a great war. And what's going to happen? There's going to be an eternal devastation, eternal. After this, this devil can never, never again raise its head. That's, that's, that's the message John is conveying. So now Babylon has been destroyed. Okay. The destruction of Babylon. The evil empire has been uh, destroyed. So once, you know, the destruction has taken place, now the songs in heaven, if we will come to that, they look to the future. 
the present evil regime has been destroyed and the heaven, the choir in the heavens, they're singing to the future. Now, what is the future? What do you think is the future? Ultimately, when an evil, ultimately when the devil is destroyed, what's going to be the future? What's going to be the end? God's kingdom is going to come and okay. there's going to be peace. There's going to be peace. Yeah. Uh, in, in other words, you're talking about the union of Christ with his bride, bride. the church. That's the wedding feast. That's, that's what's going to happen in the future. The union of Christ and his bride and the bride refers to the church. And that is why there is so much of joy in heaven. And as they sing uh, praises for the destruction of Rome, they're also looking forward to this day when you know Christ, uh, the union of Christ and his bride and the church. So how will heaven respond to this union? There's going to be a great rejoicing. It is typically, as I said earlier, it's walking from a um, funeral house to your wedding house. That's the kind of imagery. You know, there's going to be a wedding feast. Uh, in most of the Asian cultures, Asian Near East cultures, we are all familiar. Wedding means there is joy, there is celebration. So that is what's going to happen. And that's what's happening in heaven too. These angels are now you know, they are singing, how they are responding to this union, because they are thinking about this ultimate wedding, ultimate day. And what they do is the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Now, uh, in the Old Testament, as we read, you know, God was enthroned both in heaven as well as about the cherubim on the ark in his temple. That means God was enthroned in his, in the, in his, on his throne as well as in the temple. And that's the kind of imagery John is presenting here. John basically probably is getting this image from Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet Isaiah saw God uh, in the temple. And also he is taking image from Ezekiel chapter 1, where God is seated on the throne, if you read Ezekiel chapter 1. So he's combining both these things and he's saying that, uh, you know, he's presenting a kind of a heavenly throne as well as a throne room, a heavenly temple as well as a throne room. Uh, that's the kind of uh, image John is presenting uh, in this place. So this is something should be exciting to all of us. We all have struggles, we have tears, we have fears, we have anxiety, but one day, one day this is going to take place. One day all the evil that we see will come to an end. All the pain that we endure will come to an end. And that is why we are, right now we are in the climax. Um, you know, if you're watching a movie or you're reading a book, now we are in the climax. John is presenting that. 
And in verse 5, he says, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Both great and small. You know, it is like people from every nation, every language, every tribe. So that's what is included. Both great and small. Believers everywhere, of all classes, of all kinds of abilities, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, you know, sick, well-to-do, all, all are included. And all will come and stand before this throne room. Praise our God. You know, that's the voice we hear from the throne. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God. And that's what the voice we get here today in this earth as we worship him. Praise our God, all your servants who fear him, both great and small. Then we go to the next verse. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters. We have already seen this earlier. And like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our almighty, our, for our Lord God almighty reigns. You know, God was often called as Almighty God in the Old Testament. We see those references. So when it says that our Almighty God reigns, you know, God reigns in different realms. And in the Old Testament, you know, they present it in three different ways. You know, when they talk about Lord God Almighty reigns, is rule over creation. Because in Psalm 97.1, the Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. His creation, he reigns over creation. Not only reigns over creation, he is a God who grants us great deliverances. Uh, in the victory song uh, that we see in Exodus chapter 15, uh, verse 18, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, and the song that they sang this victory song, they said the Lord reigns forever and ever. So when we say our Lord God Almighty reigns, it is not only our creation, it is also our great deliverance. I'm sure all of us have expected, uh, experienced some kind of deliverance in this world. And those are the moments we say, hallelujah, our Lord God Almighty reigns. We experience deliverance in our day-to-day -day life. When we, are, when we have a problem, when we don't know what to do, because our Lord Almighty, Lord God Almighty reigns, and when we cry out to him, we experience deliverance. He's always there because he reigns. Whenever we are in a crisis, we can call on him and he's there to deliver us. And he's a God who is the Alpha and the Omega. He's a God till the end time. Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Because Isaiah 24, 23, the moon will be dismayed. The sun I shame for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion. Everything will fail. Every created things may fail, but here is a God who will reign forever and ever. And that is why they say, hallelujah. So whenever we come across this phrase, our Lord Almighty reigns, 
we should say, oh God, you have created me. I worship you. Every single cell in me belongs to you. I worship you. And we also say, Lord, in the past, you have given me deliverance. Today, if I have the struggle, you give, I, hope, I know, Lord, you will give me deliverance. So I worship you. That's how worship comes from the bottom of our hearts. And we know, Lord, one day, because I know, Lord, Jesus has said, I am the resurrection and the life. The death is not the end. The journey in this world is not the end. One day I'll come and stand before the throne and worship you. And I look forward to that time when I can give you glory, honor, and praise. That's what's happening here. Unless we get involved with this narrative, we will miss the beauty of what John is telling us, the significance of what he's telling us. For our Lord God Almighty reigns, reigns over his creation. He's a warrior God who gives deliverance to us and he's a warrior and he's a God who reigns from beginning till end. So we go to the next verse. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. You know, from the time of Jesus' resurrection, from the time he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, the heaven is preparing for the wedding of the Lamb. So you can imagine the scope and the grandeur of this wedding, the plan that is going on. You know, even in this earth, people plan for months and months what to do in this wedding, who all and all those preparations, but in heaven, it's going on and going on and going on. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. They are waiting for this event. That's, that's why we should keep waiting for the, we should have that kind of expectancy. The second coming of our Lord Jesus. Because the life, because the life in this world has become comfortable, or sometimes because of so much of technological advancement, we think, uh, generally people tend to think, oh, they can live forever. They can manage their life. They can control their life. So second coming and all, it, it's, it's a distant event. It may happen, may not happen. If it happens, okay, I believe, I call on Jesus. That expectancy, expectancy comes when you know that you're looking forward to this day. For the wedding of the lamp has come. In heaven, people are waiting. The multitude are waiting for the wedding of the lamp. That is, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamp has come. You know, if, when we read the Old Testament, you know, God has announced a great banquet for all peoples. In Isaiah 25, 6, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. In other words, just to say that the scale and grandeur and the, you know, the celebration that will be there, the wedding banquet. No one in this world can even imagine or dream such kind of preparation. This is a preparation which is going on in heaven from eternity past, it's going on, it's going on for this feast. And it's a feast 
for all peoples, people of every nation, every language, every group, that in preparation is going on. And in 25 we see the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all phases. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth the Lord has spoken. Because of what Jesus did for us, we can claim this. He has wiped away the tears. Will we have tears in this world? Yes, when we go through pain, when we go through agony, when we go through accusations, when we go through you know, difficult situations, there'll be fear. After all, we are, we'll have tears. After all, we are human beings when there is loss. There's going to be tear. But a day will come, the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all phases. One day, one day, one day. We need to cultivate that heart. That'll happen when Christ dwells in our hearts. The more and more Christ dwells in our heart, we can say that, Lord, I want to come and worship you. I'm not satisfied the way I worship you in this world. I want to see you face to face. I want to worship you. I know, Lord, you will wipe away the tears from all phases. What a gracious God we serve. It is not somebody, the angel will come and wipe away the tears. The sovereign Lord, the creator God himself will wipe away the tears from all faces. He has not delegated this work to his angels. God himself will wipe away the tears. He loves us unconditionally. He's a God who has shown unfailing love to each one of us. And that's the God whom we serve. As you read the book of Revelation, it gives you that confidence, assurance to run the race in this world, looking forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want God to come. We want Lord Jesus to come. We want everyone to have participate in this wedding. It's not only we, that's what we have the burden. We want all the people of this earth, all the people of this earth to come and participate. There's, is the greatest moment. So this kind of a you know, relationship, a wedding relationship is always there, the bride and bridegroom. That's the way the relationship between God and his people have been portrayed. Uh, we see in Hosea 2.19, I will betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. Mm. Uh, in whichever culture, the divorce rate is less or it doesn't exist. Marriage is going to be a, you know, marriage normally remains a great event. So that's what's going to happen. That's the reason, you know, that kind of a relationship has been portrayed as 
our relationship with God. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, if you go to the next verse, Revelation 19.8, fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. This is just an explanation that has been added. Uh, but John said, fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. After all, wedding dress is always a special dress, a clean dress. Even the uh, temple priest, they were supposed to wear clean dress. Uh, we see it in Leviticus 16.4. He's to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. That, that's the imagery. Fine linen, bright and clean was given to her. Uh, you know, in the uh, Jewish understanding, the angels were often, um, often supposed to be dressed in linen also, in Jewish understanding. And they take that understanding from Daniel chapter 12, 6. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, one, to the man clothed in linen. Okay, that's the understanding they take. Now, we don't have to uh, stretch too far uh, saying that what kind of dress, who is going to stitch, how long, we, we don't have to. It is just a imagery and that's what John presents here. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. It is a, basically, it's all, it, it's a symbolism uh, talking about purity and the purity has been explained, the righteous acts of God's holy people, righteous acts of God's holy people. Everything we do, small, small things we do for God's glory, those are considered as the righteous acts. Uh, it's important. We are... We have not been saved because of our good works, but we have been saved to do good works. So that's, 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 that, that's there all through the New Testament. And fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then we come to the next verse. Then the angel said to me, command, write this. You must write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. We can miss any wedding invitation, but not this wedding invitation. We should make sure we, we live in this world and we should make, it, we should make sure that we don't miss to get this wedding invitation. And that's the reason the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper invitation. Oh God, whether you give riches in this world or not, I don't want to miss this wedding invitation. Now, where does um, this appear in the series of seven Beatitudes? I said, you know, when we began this book, I said there are seven Beatitudes in this book. So where does this appear? 
Is it the seventh, first? Where does this appear? How many B attitudes we have covered so far? Three. So this is the fourth one. You're correct. This is the fourth one. We have covered so far the three B attitudes. In chapter one, chapter 14, chapter 16, chapter 19. And we have three more beatitudes to go. So, you know, there is choir, there is praise going on. There is a big, huge choir, multitude singing, praising God. And in the midst of all that, the command, the angel is telling John, write this, blessed are those. Don't miss this choir. Don't miss this worship. You may attend all the worship concerts in this world, but don't miss this worship that's going on in heaven. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You know, it's a wedding that's taking place between the bride and uh, the, between the church and the Lamb. That is the wedding that's taking place. So that is the climax. You know, we are right now, we are in the climax of the drama that all that we have studied, we have come to the exciting part of the book of Revelation. So we find in chapter 10, at this, I fell to his, at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. You know, people tend to worship angels. And this is a command for all of us to be very, very careful that we should only worship God. The angel is clearly saying, at this, I fell at his feet. John the Apostle fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. Angels are only a fellow servants, but we should be careful only to worship God. There are many things which are happening in this world. There are so many forces. Now we should never underplay those forces. People go and worship all kinds of evil forces. Do they have power? They have some kind of power. But our worship belongs only to God. Even amongst the Jewish people, there were, there, are, there, there were people who used to worship powers. Uh, that's, that's the reason they'll have those talisman, trinket, and all those they used to wear. Uh, but for us, the command is very clear, worship God. Uh, people may say, if you go to this place, they will tell you what's going to happen. No, no, not at all. Yeah, they may say, but we are not here to go to those places. We are here to go to only one place, to worship our God. So Satan is about to be overthrown. That's what we are saying. You know, this, so far he was boasting, unless you have the mark of the beast on your forehead, you cannot do business and all that. Now he's going to be overthrown. The Satan, the dragon is going to be overthrown. And his, his rule will come to an end. It began in Genesis 
chapter 3. So in the book of Revelation, his rule will come to an end. It is certain evil will be destroyed. So that's what we find in verses 1 to 9. Then what we find in verse 11 onwards is the heavenly warrior defeats the beast. And the, as I said, the ultimate climax of the book. So, in, you know, we were waiting for this. He, he said in verse 1-7, look, he is coming with the clouds. This is chapter 1, verse 7. And every eye will see him, even those who pierce him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. When people heard this um, story or this letter, when they were reading and they were listening, they were all waiting, oh, when this is going to happen, when this is going to happen, because we read few verses, we read maybe chapter by chapter, we, we have not been trained to read it as a book, as a store complete book. So they have read chapter one to seven and they're waiting, oh, when is going to come, when is going to come? So now it's going to come and uh, all that has happened earlier, is nothing compared to what's going to happen now from chapter one onwards till chapter 18. All that has happened is nothing now is going to be the climax. So the climax is, I saw heaven standing hope open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. Uh, now, I've underlined the two words I saw, because if you, if you read chapter 19, chapter 20, chapter 21, and if you see from chapter 19, 11, to chapter 21, 1, at seven places, you will find this phrase, I saw, I saw. In other words, John is presenting to us in, in rapid succession, one after the other. He is presenting to us seven visions as a preparatory to the end. Right from 1911 to 21 verse 1. We find in seven places, I saw, I saw one vision after the other vision, one vision after the other. Like that, he saw seven visions. And that's how the first vision begins. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse. Now, what is the significance of the white horse? Any significance of the white horse? Any symbolism? John is basically making use of the images of his day. 
that's the reason why it hurts. You know, as I said, when you read this apocalyptic literature, you should not literally imagine, you know, Jesus is going to sit on a white horse. It'll have four legs, one tail, and that's that's not. Uh, John is making use of all these images. And basically the Roman princes, uh, they normally, they rode white horses in military trams. When they have overcome uh, a country, then when they return, they came on white horses. Basically, they are they were victorious. That's the symbolism uh, John is um, referring to. Uh, the history says even the Emperor Domitian, uh, he, the father and and brother, uh, after defeating uh, the Jewish. I know if you read the Jewish War of AD 66 to 70 after defeating Israel or Jerusalem, and they rode on the white horses. So it's all a kind of symbolism uh, John is uh, making use of. Uh, but Jesus has been told as king of kings, uh, Parthenian em emperors were known to be very, very powerful. And it could also refer to the Parthenian emperor who came on white horses. But the idea is basically to say that God is with, Jesus is victorious. He is a victorious God. That's the idea. Uh, when he says that, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse. So people should not uh, think and uh, start treating white horses as special. All horses are the same. Uh, basically to say that our God is a victorious God. Uh, you know, you are talking about your Parthenian king, Roman emperors. One day our God will come. He is the king of kings. He is a real king of kings. No earthly power can stand before him. And all this we have in these images we have in the Old Testament. This is what the Lord says to me, Isaiah 31, 4. As the lion growls, a great lion over its prey. And though your whole band of shepherds is called together against it, it is not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor. So the all Lord Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion and on its heights. That's going to be the fulfillment and that's going to take place. Uh, I have finished for today. If you have any questions, you can ask. Pastor, yes, I want go. to know. I want to know: Will the mark of the beast take place, as it is mentioned in Revelation chapter thirteen? I didn't get your question. Yes, in Revelation thirteen, we saw there's a mark of the beast. Mark yes. of the beast. Yes. Is it? Literal, is it literal? It will take place. And those who take the mark? Uh, as we have said that uh, in John's time, uh, we saw that, uh, we saw in chapter 13, uh, it's talking about 
we all you are also referring to triple six is it that yes and we saw that triple six refers to nero kaiser this calls yes. for wisdom let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast Beats. for it is the number of a man that number is triple six uh, basically it is talking about all kinds of evil regimes but when john was writing he was basically uh, pointing towards the roman empire uh, he is not telling about a mark but uh, yeah, from time to time governments may come with different marks only if you have this mark uh, you can do this now so long as it is a normal economic activity uh, it is okay for us to have those marks but if those marks are associated with emperor worship then we should refrain from that there are different kinds of marks now today only if you have this aadhar number you can do this uh, but yes. beyond an economic activity it is not linked to any um, worship as such but if the same number comes with an attachment that you need to worship in this place then we should not have that number and as of today rome has risen back to power isn't it is it pastor it has not come to its earliest glory the kind of glory it had it was a a world power those days now you don't yes. consider rome as a world power any longer mm. they've lost you. that they've lost that preeminence uh pastor another observation that i just wanted to ask um in revelation 198 we read about fine linen bright and clean was given her to wear and fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints just reminded me of the verse that we often quote that says our righteous acts are like filthy rags before god so is it that now that because now that the church is wedded to christ that they are now like they are now compared to fine linen because when you appear before christ uh you will be clean yeah. all our all our acts what we do is right now uh you know despite our best intentions they fall short of god's standards yes but when we stand before him because of what jesus did for us salvation is something that um what we cannot do for ourselves jesus did it for us and that's the reason we can even call god as abba father we have been made righteous because of his righteousness yes, and yes. and during this time because knowing what jesus has done for us we try to just do things in response to that and those acts are also counted yes because to us when we go a uh, uh, little later we will see there are two books 
normally we only talk about book of life but in revelation it speaks about two books so we'll come to that place uh, one is about life book of life uh, we have been rescued from sin then the other place is book of merit the kind of acts we do matters matters it definitely matters uh, because rewards will not be the same rewards will be different there are no more questions uh, we have our Friday evening devotions. We have already completed four uh, evening devotions. Last Friday, we saw the champion. Because of the champion, because of the victor, uh, we also have the victory. We look forward to this victor coming back because of what he has done for us. So we are dwelling on the cross, basically what Jesus has done for us. Uh, you have the meeting ID, you have the passcode. Uh, it is from 8 p.m. to 8.30 uh, p.m., just for half an hour, uh, this Friday, March 19, and next Friday. Two more Fridays left. You can share with your friends, invite your family members. Uh, it is a real blessed time, Pastor. Thank you, Sister. Thank you. Uh, Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Glorious Father, we thank you for speaking to us this evening. Thank you, Lord, for the place that you have prepared for us and you're preparing for that wedding feast. We pray, Lord, each one of us will be able to get that invitation for the wedding feast. Let our eyes be fixed on you, Jesus. There's nothing more glorious than that. Let us not be distracted by the things of this world, by the comforts of this world, but let our eyes be on our Lord Jesus who died for us, who shed his blood for us, whose body was broken for us. We thank you for this great privilege and the great blessing that you have, that you have given to us. Bless each and everyone who attended this session. Continue to minister to us, continue to speak to us, continue to build us up, for your glory, for your honor. Teach us to worship you at all times, in and through our words, in and through our thoughts, and in and through our deeds. Bless us with good health, O oh Lord, if anybody is struggling or having pain. I pray, Lord, your healing virtues would flow through their bodies. You will heal them, comfort them, bless them with good health. In Jesus' precious name, we pray. Amen. Amen. May the, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ unfailing love of our Heavenly Father and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit remain with each one of us now and forevermore. Amen.